and welcome to Inside Education, the podcast for educators who are interested in teaching. With me, Sean Delaney. I'm a teacher and teacher educator, and I welcome your comments and suggestions by email to insideeducationpodcast at yahoo.com. Follow me on Twitter at InsideEd. My book about teaching, Become the Primary Teacher Everyone Wants to Have, is available in hard copy, Kindle or audiobook. You can listen to or download over 400 previous episodes of Inside Education by going to seandelaney.com and clicking on the Podcasts tab. My guest on the podcast this week is my longtime colleague in Marino Institute of Education and fellow Vice President, Dr. Jean Megan. Jean's expertise is in literacy education, and we are speaking because a paper he authored was published recently in a special issue of Education Sciences dedicated to reading fluency. The title of the paper was Effects of Fluency-Oriented Instruction on Motivation for Reading of Struggling Readers. Jean has been a respected literacy educator for over 30 years as an initial teacher educator, a provider of professional development for teachers and as a presenter at conferences. He is past president of both the Literacy Association of Ireland, LAI, and the Irish Learning Support Association. He has worked for the World Bank in the Gambia and has authored primary school textbooks. He has vast experience in education in disadvantaged settings and is manager of a school in Darndale. You'll like this podcast if you're interested in supporting struggling readers in your class, if you're interested in motivating students to read, and if you want to know how children can become fluent readers. The programme will also be of interest to anyone teaching in a disadvantaged setting. It includes personal anecdotes and recommendations for autobiographies as well. When I met up with Jean, I noted that the recently published article in Education Sciences referred to motivation for reading, fluency-oriented instruction and struggling readers. I asked him to tell me how or when a teacher would decide that a reader is struggling. Well, Sean, you've identified probably the core of it by asking about struggling readers. And I suppose typically when I talk about struggling readers, it is somebody who is presenting in in the classroom situation who is actually not reading at grade level is, is probably one definition of it. But I probably would take a step back forward from that is that, look, what is reading about, first of all? What are the requirements for reading? And for instance, in some children, it's actually, have they actually cracked the alphabetic code? In other words, when they're presented with a very simple word, are they able to decode it? So a struggling reader at the very beginning of the reader would have difficulty around that. Would they be aware of print? Would they be phonologically aware? In other words, can they hear the individual sounds at the start of a word, the end of a word? So children not being able to do those sort of things would probably present as struggling readers. But there's also, if you go beyond that, because that's the very beginning of reading, a child who maybe has cracked the code and can decode, but they may not be able to understand what they read. And that would also be an element of struggling readers. They may not be able to analyze the information they encounter when they're reading, or indeed they wouldn't be able to have the vocabulary necessary for understanding reading. So it's not a one-size-fits-all, but um, all those things would indicate that the child could be struggling at reading. One interesting thing, Sean, is that I found an awful lot of teachers categorize struggling readers comparatively. So I have 20 in my class. Sometimes a struggling reader in one classroom in one particular area would not be a struggling reader in inverted commas elsewhere. So sometimes it's seen as comparative. Now, you've used a lot of technical words there. You've talked about, you know, they can't decode, they might don't have phonological awareness and so on. 
But if I'm a parent and I don't know about that, or if I'm a teacher and, you know, I'm looking at a lot of children at the same time, is there a way I can tell from listening to a child or do I have to listen to the child or can I tell, say, if a child is reading silently that they're struggling? I would say if you want to know a a child, especially in the beginning reading, you have to listen. You have to listen. Um, Because if you don't listen, the only really way you'll know is by actually looking at comprehension and asking questions. Ultimately, we want to become very good silent readers. Very few of us read out loud purposefully. We don't read typically out loud. We would, of course, if you were were asked to give a lecture or you were to give a presentation, you may be reading out loud. But going back to your question, yes. So I do think you have to listen to children reading. And if you think about it, and this probably will eventually lead us to why I I actually focus on fluency. The natural thing is we want children to read as close to their oral language presentation as possible to make it sound like speaking, if you like. If you see a child who is at the and it's very often happens when a child is begin to read, they're actually told to focus on the individual letters. They're told to read from left to right. They're told to focus and actually and sometimes sound out. You've often not heard sound out. And even they've been told to, to do things like, can you look at it? Look at it harder, whatever, whatever that means. And naturally, when you're attentive to looking at how the sounds of, of letters as they are written on the printed page, children are, are encouraged to look at the individual words. We would need to move on from that because if you look, even if I, if I asked you just to read every word and I only present it as you see it, you will have staccato type reading. Teachers do need to listen to their children reading. And the great sign is that they actually have this fluent automaticity in their reading. And just one f- further thing on that is that when we're reading, we don't actually look at the words we're reading. Our eye bounds ahead. And that's that, That's a fluent element, right? And, and that's we know when the child is actually getting to a fluent reading. Because if you come across a word like S-E-W-E-R, that could be a sore or a sewer. But you will not know that as you're reading along. But the fluent reader will never mix up those words because their eye has bound ahead. That's a long way about saying, um, did you do listen to children to, to know if they're, if they're, if they're struggling? And, and, and I really like the idea that it's how much they're in sync with their normal rhythm of speaking. Yeah. That, that's an interesting way to think about, about the struggling reader. You, you did move on there to the idea of fluency. And another aspect of the paper that you had published was fluency-oriented instruction. What is fluency-oriented instruction? First of all, to define what I mean by fluency is that, because you, you mentioned there, the natural reading, that would be the prosody of how the, the intonation, how we express ourselves, that we don't actually um, just read in a very staccato way. So the fluency would be that you would have automat- automaticity, reading at a, a suitable rate, and of course, of accuracy. There's no point in being very fluent and at a good rate and getting all the words wrong. But fluency-orientated reading instruction was something brought in by Stephen Stahl and Kathleen Hubick back in 1997, I think, was when they brought their first article out. And they were looking at how children could read fluently in the classroom and what could promote fluent reading. And in a way, they, they were actually not moving away. They recognize absolutely the stages that children go through in learning to read. They do need to know the sounds associated with letters, they, all that. But what moves them on towards reading fluently? And what kind of instruction would promote that? And one of the things they found is that repeated reading of the same text, and amazingly, was one of the really, really good vehicles for promoting fluency-orientated reading instruction. Now, you'd say, oh, gee, well, what happens when children, if they're asked to do the same over and over again? I know when I started teaching, we had one reader, Anne and Barry, 
because I had 42 children in my class, inevitably, to very, very poor practice on my behalf, they read and reread and reread. And very often they knew it, if you like, off by heart. And I, I remember a child saying to me, can I do my reading with my eyes shut? I knew there was something really, um, something wrong here. They've, they've actually associated getting all the words in the page right as being part of reading. So Stalin Ubik looked at it and said, no, if I'm doing any skill, if I'm playing the piano and learning a tune, I won't learn 10 different tunes. I learn one tune and practicing that will actually develop my fluency, if you like. But they also found that by doing that, and Timothy Rosinski in his later researches, by doing that, not only do you get good at that piece, which is natural, but when you go to a new piece, you've learned certain aspects of reading that, are, that you don't start at the same level with a new piece of reading. And then, of course, the thing is, as I said, Sean, reading the same piece over and over again is very laborsome. It can be tiresome. So then they, they, they brought up a whole range of activities that how you can actually approach the same piece of text in a creative way that not only develops fluency, but also looks at the cognitive elements of, of, of reading as well. That element of repeated reading, bringing in parental involvement and bringing in partners in reading, like the body reading, that, that's all part of the fluency oriented reading instruction. And I wonder, could you say a little bit more, Jean, even about that, about what fluency oriented instruction would look like in a classroom? Yeah. Can I also qualify that this sort of instruction was seen to be most effective that watershed time around first class or second class in our in our country or second grade and third grade in, in America where the research was done. That time when, when when children are learning to read and haven't quite graduated to reading to learn. In other words, they haven't got fluent. So, so in other words, just in case any listener would think that, oh, this is great. Now we can do it all reading. Uh, it is actually that particular watershed time that was very important. And how it might look in the, in the classroom is that you would may have a whole range of activities that you could actually be, be doing in the classroom. And it's, it's like a gradual release of responsibility where the teacher takes responsibility, first of all, no matter how good the, the children are, and they model reading. So you read to children, and I would always be a huge fan of, of teachers and parents reading to children. So that's modeling the reading process, modeling intonation, modeling the pace of reading, and, and actually reading. And then this notion of a gradual uh, release responsibility handing over to the children. And that could be doing things like where they do the shared reading with the teacher, reading along with the teacher. Choral reading, you know, choral reading is when all the class read together. Something, again, that I probably moved away from because when I did choral reading, it was everyone chanting the same thing. But it was a way of children, and especially the children who are less able, being incorporated into it. We, we, we have no difficulty children singing a song and everyone singing together. Can we do that in reading as well? Within that choral reading, um, can you break it down? So another activity the, child, the, the teacher could be doing and saying, could we do... Um, Thing, a very, a thing I've really enjoyed doing with children is what's called cumulative choral reading. So basically, I start reading and then someone else joins in. It's not like round robin reading now, but you keep on reading as well. And then a third. And eventually you're building it up like to a crescendo. And then doing the opposite where all the children start and we start ebbing it out. Now, it does sound a bit like the National Concert Hall in some ways, but it's a way, of course, of getting the language and the pace of reading going. Other things like echo reading, where I read and the child actually echoes back what I read. This is, by the way, and this is really important to make this point, this is not instead of what I call the, the, the approach where we do our phonics and we do our... Do, this is something that actually augments that and gets, gets the whole idea of, of children enjoying reading and getting fluent in reading. There's other ones I can talk about later on, if you like, other aspects of, of, of the, um, the fluency-oriented model. Well, even that one, I mean, 
like, is it possible for everyone to be reading fluently when they're all reading chorally and then presumably at the same pace? Well, you must remember, if everyone's reading fluent, if, 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 you, if you could manage to, to dim out, uh, we'd say, 24 of the 25, the struggling reader will still struggle. But what you're doing here is you're giving a scaffolding and a structure for the child to come along. So when the child gets stuck, well, they can actually pick up again. That they're not, they're not going. But they're also hearing the, the pace and the, and the phrasal nature of reading. Re- reading, it, it comes in phrases, it comes in intonation. But the one thing, if you actually leave a child to their own devices and they're actually stuck on staccato type reading, they'll never get that. Yeah, but you see, the intonation is important. But you know, when you start, like children, and, and I think of it even, say, in terms of prayer or anything like that in the school, children love to get into the chant and the regular yeah. beat and so on. And like, not all reading has a regular beat I mean, outside poetry. So can it become a little bit forced or a little bit constrained if, if it does tend towards chanting rather than towards fluency? Well, it could, of course, because you do not want to think that okay, the choral reading is one part of this gradual release of responsibility. For instance, you'll be very quickly going towards paired reading, the buddy reading or paired reading where children actually are reading with each other, that you get get, get away from what you're talking about, the, the idea of chanting. That's one element, one small element, obviously, bringing children to hearing the, the natural pace of language. Just one. Because the danger is, by the way, is that you get a message. Oh, so now we should be all into choral reading. No, no. Choral reading is one way of, I feel like, smuggling the children in towards this. And then you break it down. There's a lot of other ones. There's a the thing called antiphonal reading, where you one person reads, another person would, would carry on the reading. So there's many, many different ways of actually interpreting that. But I suppose the, the, the core message is that we're taking the same text and looking at ways we can read the same text in different ways to, to develop fluency. And the third area of your paper is motivation for reading. What is motivation for reading? Well, what is motivation for anything? And I suppose it, it, there is more research probably in motivation than there is almost anything in the area of reading and in the, and the outside of reading and of learning. And you might remember, Sean, when we started, both started in Marino Institute many, many years ago, my predecessor teaching English methods was a brother Kinsella. And uh, I remember actually talking about people knew him as Bonnie. Exactly, knew him as Bonnie. And I remember um, when um, Brother Kinsella had retired and maybe come to the end of his career and indeed the end of his life, he was quite an elderly gentleman. I I interviewed him a couple of times because I really, I found some of his books in Marino and they were some of his notes and they really were ahead of his time. Whatever people thought about his methods, his his, his notion of, of reading was ahead of his time. And I'd asked him one question about if I had to ask you the most important thing in teaching children to read, what, is it is it phonics, like, or, or or is it vocabulary? Is it comprehension, the, the ultimate goal? And he actually just said, no, he says, there's only one thing important in teaching children to read. And then he stopped. <laughs> and then he said, it's just motivation. If children are not motivated to read, it doesn't matter what you're going to do. Children will not achieve in reading. And I never forgot that particular moment. And he said motivation for reading because it's something I hadn't figured into this big complex business of teaching young children to read. But when I remember back to my own teaching, I realized, well, you know, if if they're not motivated, they probably weren't going to read. It made me think a lot about my own reading habits. And there's a person, Louise Rosenblatt, back in the, in the 70s, and she wrote this article, it was very interesting, about motivation for reading, but how different people are motivated differently to read. And she called a continuum between the efferent and the aesthetic. And I, I taught my own family. I said, my sister is an avid reader. She reads five or six books a week. 
And I often think, how can you even be knowing what you're reading? You're just you're churning through these books. And she would describe that as the, the aesthetic reader. They're reading for pleasure. They're re- and they're motivated to read. And, motiv- and their motivation is they just love reading. It's like going playing golf. It's like going playing tennis, going for a run. They just love doing it. So she'd read six books. I'm the opposite end. I'm the efferent. And the effort means like the effort is to carry. What do you carry away? I tend to read to, to study. And I often go back and read the same chapter again. So I didn't quite get that as if I was going to get an examination at the end of it. Right? So the motivation for reading for me tends to be is, okay, I, I enjoy this. And maybe it, it also indicates the type of books I read. You also tell a story, Jean, about a pupil you taught, Jason, who uh, was a struggling reader, but how motivation played a, a role in his, in his development. Jason has a lot to answer for because he brought to mind what actually I found to be the one thing that worked with my struggling readers, but I didn't realize it. Jason's story is that Jason is, this is quite a while ago when I was teaching in Darndale Junior School. And by the way, Jason's not his real name, so I'm, I'm happy enough to talk about Jason. And I had a child in my class in seven years of age who really was a non-reader, not a just struggling, he was a non-reader. Like he really, really did not read. And when I tried to, to, to teach him to read with a really heavily cognitive approach, I taught him all his sounds like, as best I could. We got age appropriate readers. We actually did everything possible. But he had joined my class and my, my learning support class or my remedial class, as it was called at the time, from a different school. And the report came saying that Jason has very poor oral language. Jason doesn't know any of his letter sounds. And it was a fairly dismal report on, 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 on Jason. And Jason lived up to his reputation and to his report by coming into a classroom, disengaged with reading. I found, by the way, he, he actually did get to know all the sounds eventually but he didn't know what they were for. The best you could get from Jason was a very staccato type approach to reading. This was ongoing until it was a mid-year time and we were a long weekend. And I, I think on, on retrospect, it must have been a mid, it was a midterm break. So it might've been either February or October. I can't actually remember exactly, but there was a function that evening in the local hall and I attended it for the school. And when I went in there, there was a band on, really good band playing. And who did I see in the front row? Only Jason. So I sidled up quite close to Jason. And his father was the lead singer in the band. So that, hence his interest and his motivation for being there. But I was enjoying it. And his father uh, was, was lead singer. And they, they, most of their songs were Buddy Holly type songs. like So it just doesn't matter anymore, etc. But while I was intrigued at the band playing, I was more intrigued that next to me, little Jason knew every single word of every single song. Every song. Every single word. I mean, like, it was incredible. I like music. My biggest problem is after the first verse, I struggle. Right? I might know the chorus. He knew everyone. So here was a child sitting next to me with no oral language, seemingly, unable to read, etc., and yet knew all these words. I didn't go home that evening. I went into my classroom. I had a piano in the classroom. I, I decided, right, when Jason comes back here on Monday week, Buddy Holly is going to be left, right, and center, right on, on these walls, charts with the words of it. And I was wondering what would happen if he the words he knows are actually up on the charts. And we did that. Now, as it happens, God bless Buddy Holly. He had an awful lot of the, the most useful sight words, as we call them, are, are you know, high frequency words are in those songs. The, the language of his songs actually are not there. They're quite simple and quite repetitive. When Jason came back into a, a room festooned with Buddy Holly, it was like someone put on a light because even when he knew the words, he could actually locate where they were. So he, he actually reversed into reading. He knows all the words first and reversed into it. But the big thing about it, Sean, was the motivation. 
he would now wanted to read every single one of those words. He would say, Matters, look at Matters in there. And there's two T's in there. Like, you know, this was incredible. So we went and we sang songs and we did it. And Jason actually, he never came tops in the micro T test or anything. He never did, actually. He still had some difficulties in reading. But by God, was he motivated to read. We actually built books up. We wrote the songs into the books. We wrote stories about it. We wrote speech bubbles of Buddy Holly singing songs. And he wrote a child who never wrote before in his life. And I would say one thing was that he had a motivation to do it. He was motivated. Suddenly he had an interest or an engagement in doing so. Jason's story was an eye-opener for me. Many years later, I met Jason in a local hardware store and uh, didn't, he recognized me and we had a great chat. And, and, and he actually said to me, and you know, Master, I'm still doing the music and I'm still reading. You know, I walked away saying, you know, that really is what's about. He's still reading. He's still doing it. Because how many times did I, I know that I had children that I had in learning support class for reading and they actually, did, they really improved. And then third, fourth, fifth class, they'd come back again. They disengaged, Sean. They had really disengaged with reading. And that was, I suppose, my inspiration for saying, can I capture what type of reading would do that? And the nearest match I could get was in the research was actually fluency-oriented reading instruction. So that's such a powerful story. It really captures motivation so well, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, yeah, and motivation to see motivation is an interesting thing because there's so many different constructs, Sean, from motivation. There's a, so many ways that people look at intrinsic motivation and extrinsic motivation, and they they, they sound dichotomous. Is that are you intrinsically motivated? Are you um, extrinsically motivated? But they can happen together. And in fact, one thing I learned from my study is they they need to happen together. If a child is not intrinsically motivated, you have to get them on the on the track some way. That's almost like a weaning person away from the, the necessity for extrinsic motivation to intrinsic motivation. And the one thing in, in relation to motivation for reading, a lot of studies had looked at motivation generally and motivation for reading in older children. Very few of them, very few studies had looked at assessing and, and, and gauging motivation for younger children. Yeah, and, and then there's even the question about which comes first. Is it the motivation precedes the achievement or is it that when you get good at something that that motivates you? Well, there is a bi-directional causal relationship between reading skills and motivation, which is a very interesting question. Said there. So in other words, if I'm motivated, well, I'm probably going to read more. If I read more, I'm going to get motivated. So there is a bi-directional causal relationship there, and that, which is very interesting. I think the, also the interesting thing is that I know when I had to go on in part of my study, I had to assess the children's motivation because it really was I, I wanted demotivated children before they could start to study. And how do you assess if someone's motivated or not? And that was an interesting um, element, how we actually assess children's motivation. The article that you wrote then about motivation and about uh, fluency-oriented instruction and about struggling readers – Tell us a little bit about the research you did and and about the findings of the research. I was very uh, convinced that like uh, fluency oriented reading instruction would be would be a help, but I wanted to know like there's no point in, in doing research if everyone is already doing this anyway. So the the research happened in two phases, Sean. The first phase is I looked at about uh, twenty seven or twenty six schools in North Dublin, and I looked at what was happening in in the broad area of compensatory uh, education for reading. In other words, learning support, what's happening. And I, I did it in the context of DESH schools, um, disadvantaged schools. And I went along and I talked to the learning support teachers who were 
grappling with children in the, in the emergent literacy phase. In other words, the, those children, senior infants, first and second class, that area really, and looking at their practice, particularly looking at children in first class, because that really was where I was going to focus my study on anyway. The research did about all those teachers, first of all, what's your typical approach to, to intervention which it was struggling readers? And I found out basically there was a high emphasis on a cognitive approach, basically skills. If you're struggling with reading, this is what we're going to do. You're going to get a good solid dose of phonics and um, I suppose a bottom-up approach to reading, if you like. That was the first thing I found. I also found that, that there was not much of an awareness of a fluency approach to reading. Teachers knew what fluency was, but they didn't see how that might be actually embedded into, especially, like, it was often was asking, how do you mean fluency? How can, it's like asking a child to, to swim, to, to swim 100 meters and they can't even thread water, or to ask them to sprint and they can't even walk. So they saw it as, as something that came later on rather than something that could be embedded into their practice. And the other part of the research of the phase one was looking at the motivation element. Do they think the motivation was important? Yes, absolutely. All thought the motivation was important. But they also said that they were almost without an exception that the struggling readers were poorly motivated. They were poorly motivated. One, one influenced the other. It was also interesting. Some teachers came back and said, yes, it was some children were still motivated reading, but they just couldn't do it. That they would love to read. They read it in books, but they, they were very enthusiastic but couldn't do it. So that was the first finding. I found out that fluency-oriented instruction wasn't being used really, but but children or teachers also thought that motivation was a very, very important thing in, in, in the aspect of the beginning reader. That was phase one. So now, okay, now I can start. So then what we did is that we actually, I asked people, would they be interested in, in getting involved in this in this uh, bit of research where we would actually look at this particular uh, approach to teaching reading? Uh, would it require people to embark on professional development before they ever did it? And I was blown away by the amount of people within the, the that 22 schools who wanted to do it. In fact, that was difficult. Then I had to choose. I had to choose. And we, I chose, obviously, Deshband one schools, but I also wanted, I got took an Educate Together school. And I took a, uh, I, I took a, among the three, I, I tried to diversify as much with those three. But we got then learning support teachers in three different schools to come on board. And they did professional development in this area. And we set out a, a schedule for a, for a semester, for a term how they would actually, each day, they would actually, with this group, with a selected group of children, that they would select um, those children who they said they're struggling readers and they're poorly motivated. They couldn't get into the research project unless they ticked both of those boxes. The struggling readers part was interesting, but the motivated, uh, being poorly motivated, we had to be careful to make sure we hadn't some people in there who were already motivated for reading. And we did that. We assessed the children. We interviewed the parents. We talked to the, the classroom teachers. And then we embarked on a 10-week program of fluency-oriented reading instruction. We had baseline data, first of all. The easy part was the, the reading performance, right, the reading performance. And we also knew the research also told us that fluency-oriented reading instruction had been proven to be very good for in, in, improving their reading achievement, right? I wasn't really interested in that as much. In fact, I didn't, uh, I won't say I didn't care. I, I knew that was going to probably happen. And you take children and you have every single week and every single day you actually you 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 actually bring them to a particular program, it's most likely to improve on their reading assessment. But would it have an effect on their motivation for reading? Three different constructs. One was their self-efficacy and for reading. The second one was their orientation towards reading or reading in an orientation. And the third one was their perceived difficulty in reading. How, how, how difficult did they perceive reading to be? Interesting, the 
the questionnaire for uh, motivation was interesting. I, I had a lovely way of comparing. So I, I did the same questionnaire with the teachers and the classroom teachers and, and the and support teachers. And there was a huge correlation between what they said was going to be the results. Interesting. They would say, yes, they had a very high perceived or that the children would see the reading as, as uh, being difficult. Interesting, the children didn't always see it as being difficult. They, they were quite happy. Oh, yeah, no, it's fine. Everything grand. I'm, I'm a good reader. They, 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 they didn't see it as being difficult, right? But the key ones, that they were not oriented towards reading. So I've asked them a question. Would you like to go and ride in your bike or read a book? They'd ride in the bike. If they didn't, if the punchers even, they would ride a, they'd ride in the bike. Uh, how would you feel if you got a present of a book for your, for your birthday? Not happy, usually, but and some, or some children come back, oh, uh, yeah, that'd be fine. I'll give it to my brother. He likes reading. You know, like, so they were, they were giving me a range of, of indications that they were not orientated towards reading. Not surprising. They were struggling. And also the self-efficacy was quite low. So that was how the, the project went on for 10, 10 weeks. We did look at it afterwards. Uh, when, the, when the research was over, we looked at the results as regards where their self-efficacy was, where their reading and orientation was, and, and indeed where their perceived difficulty was. And also asked the classroom teachers who were independent from this what they felt was happening in the classroom with those children. And we also went back uh, six months later to see it. And I went back two years later to some of those children. But the, the difficulty went back two years later. Interesting, a lot of them had dispersed. <laughs> but, it, but I did get information on all of those. So that, that's in a nutshell, that's what the, the, the project was about. Sean. And what, what you found was that by focusing on fluency, yeah. these struggling readers became more motivated to read. Yeah, what I, what we found is that it's not exclusively on on um, on fluency because during that we didn't just say we're stopping everything else, but by by introducing these highly motivational activities like readers' theatre, or like uh, coming along and saying we're going to do timed repeated reading. Every child comes with a natural sort of competitiveness and they like to do it. So they were the piece that they were reading that they knew very well. But we're going to read this now, but we're going to time you and I would say for one minute and see how far you get. And then rather than just rushing through that reading, then we also went back and said, well, now we're going to do things like slide and glide. So take a sentence. I'll say the first phrase, but you have to say the second phrase. And they were getting modeling in the first phrase, all those small things. So it's very hard for me to say all the amount of stuff that was being poured into the same. But the end of it is they just loved the, the idea of these games. We're not reading, we're playing games. But their fluency was being actually, it was being improved as we went along. And had other people looked at this topic before or was this something that was new to you? Because you had said that that you had looked at fluency oriented instruction for competence in reading, but not necessarily for motivation. Well, there is there was two things happened, Sean, in this area. There was a lot of work done on uh, fluency oriented reading instruction as a way of improving reading achievement with second grade students so that we knew that fluency oriented reading instruction had a positive impact on it. We also know that, as I said, the direction that motivated children um, would, would, would read more. What we didn't know is that this type of instruction with struggling readers, would it actually impact on their motivation for reading? And ergo, that means they may well continue to read and and, and, re, and continue to be motivated readers. And that was the part that actually was different. And that and the second class students you, you used? First class, first, first class students, first, yeah, first class, class students. Okay. Um, it was second grade in America, and that was interpreted as first class here, around seven years of age, basically. Like Okay. And based on your research, what advice would you give to teachers for supporting struggling readers and for improving their motivation? 
If you ask me that question outside of the context of our present our present conversation, I would say my, my advice would be was for for teachers is get very up to date on the science of reading and uh, what, what understand what actually how children learn to read is very very important. There's a whole science there, and what and the, the reading wars have raged on for hundreds of years and they will rage on for another hundred years but we have learned things we have learned things that there is certain things that children need to be taught to, to learn to read our brains are not wired for reading our brains we are absolutely naturally predisposed for for oral language that children will learn language without ever being taught but you can leave a child forever and they will not suddenly learn to read there is an alphabet principle there we have to decode so my advice is for teachers number one get really interested in reading up on the, on the books like daniel willingham's the reading mind uh, find out how actually the, the best most up-to-date science in the teaching of reading is the first thing and then i would say with that, you have a, a silver arrow that you can bring into it. You can actually look at the idea of repeated practice. And in, within the fluency-orientated thing, look at how you can smuggle children into being interested and engaged in reading while that's going on. And what about parents? What can they do to promote students' motivation? Uh, the one thing I, I know that uh, when my sister uh, had her children, she, she was very interested in knowing how she could actually be interested in getting their children to read, especially, or to learn. And I, I gave advice, and this is back maybe up to 30 years ago now, and I still say with the same advice, reading to children and reading with children is the most powerful thing I know. I, I have yet to come across anything more powerful than reading to children and reading with children. And by doing that, it's a way it fits into what I'm talking about, about modeling the process, but especially young children, reading to them. A lot of people talk about being a role model and being seen to be reading, but that some children can see it, like you're doing the garden, but I won't bother doing the garden. Like that's, that's, your, that's your business. But reading to children is probably the most powerful thing I've ever come across, Sean, as, as regards um, the idea of promoting reading, reading and reading efficacy. You refer in the article to illiterate children as opposed to illiterate children. You talk about illiterate children. What does it mean to be illiterate? And what can be uh, done about it? <laughs> well, actually, illiterate is, is, is a very specific type of reader. The word a as a as a prefix is an interesting one anyway, like, you know, amoral, asexual, illiterate, or then, of course, abhorred or awash. It's a very interesting, going into etymology, that would be a very interesting one. But in this particular one, it doesn't mean that you're not literate. It's not illiterate. Illiterate is those children who actually can read, but they choose not to. Right. So it is very it's an interesting one in the context of this study is because they're not actually motivated to read. So they, they are a subset of children who actually they probably choose not to. And by the way, you know, it's it's not a, a black and white situation either, because all of us as adults, we, we read in different ways. I, I know my colleagues, including yourself, you'll have a different reading habit than I will. You will read different stuff. But a litter is actually those person who actually can read, but actually choose not to. The reason that was referred to is that motivation is a huge part of, of, of turning that particular juggernaut around. That makes a lot of sense. You've mentioned a few times in the conversation about conducting your research and about teaching in a Desh Band 1 school, which is a, a disadvantaged school. From a lifetime to date of teaching, conducting research and managing a school in a disadvantaged area, what do you see as the role of education in a disadvantaged setting? I probably don't discern any way different between the role of education in a disadvantaged setting to otherwise. I think that 
education is about promoting a responsible citizen, having children have been knowledgeable when they come out of school. I, I think and be informed. So I, I don't actually see the difference in education in a disadvantaged setting being different to other, other places. I do think one thing, though, is that there is there is a network gap that children who come from disadvantaged areas, maybe from socioeconomic, that they do not have a network built up. And I'm talking about maybe potential employment and actually how our world works. So I do think that part of our the role of education would be closing that network gap. So in other words, the children coming out there are just as, as informed and just know about, we'd say, sustainability, know about, we'd say, how other cultures live, etc., rather than just saying, the narrow focus of our curriculum and our subjects. But I don't necessarily see that there's a difference between what the role of education in the disadvantaged area to other, to other areas. That's an interesting idea about the network gap, so that, that they need to develop a network that other people may have inherently to growing up in a more privileged or a more advantaged setting. Yeah, and I, that was something that was brought to my attention, Sean, when I started teaching in an interdisciplinary area in Dublin. I, I grew up in a, a rural town in, in, in West Cork where there wasn't that network gap because it, 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 was, it was one size fits all pretty much. The only exposure I got from teaching in Dublin had been to teaching practice and I'd been to different schools like in Clontarf and in, in different areas around. And then suddenly... I was landed into an area where where it was it was different. It was something, and I wasn't quite sure what was different about it. But one thing, after teaching there for almost twenty years, I realised is that the opportunities afforded to some of these students at the end of their their career of, of education wasn't always an equal basis. And that doesn't mean that that if they got the points, they couldn't go to college. But there was something about a network and, and communications, and, I, and that was brought to my attention when one of my past students who had done the leaving cert, which is fantastic, and had done well, and she was applying for a job, and she asked me, is there any way that I could find another address for her, right? That she didn't want to put Darndale down on the address. She had a reason for, for doing that, and I think that somewhere in that, that feeds into the network gap, you know? Because my experience was there is, and, and we have proven that we have people, we now have past students teaching in our school there, which is fantastic. But there's something about that network gap, I think, is that, that, that we can, that the role of education can do something to address that somewhat. And how do you think it can do that? How, how, can, how can a school, say, from, from the early, early days, help students bridge that gap? Well, I know that a lot of the work that's actually already going on in the school is where, where you're actually you're promoting very confident individuals. People, uh, if you if you think back, Sean, years ago, how how we were bringing to to bear on the per, the person's own self confidence, their own again, I go back to even motivation for learning. If you can even do that, if you have somebody who emerges from the school system, who feels they have knowledge, they have their responsibility. But they also have this, this, the self-esteem and self-confidence is raised to a level that's saying, yes, this is not so much my rights, but I am actually as good as anybody else here, if not better. I think that's something that the school system can do. And do you think education will ever trump disadvantage? <laughs> oh, that's an interesting one. Uh, basically, uh, it was, a, was it, um, I don't want to misquote. I think it's Paula Freire said that education doesn't change the world education changes people and then people change the world so sean i've lived through breaking the cycle 
the the whole range of of of, of Desh, uh, which was by the way Desh delivering equality for opportunities in schools, and I have a difficulty with that because it's it's not in schools. You need to develop de- deliver equality of opportunity in life, if you like, not just schools. Society. It's society exactly. So can education trump disadvantage? Not, education won't trump disadvantage because I, I, on its own. But if we if we discern and say, as I said, going back to Paul Freire, if education doesn't change the world, it changes people. If we can change the people, they can actually have an impact on, on disadvantage. Have you seen any examples of good practice from individual teachers supporting students in disadvantaged settings over the years? Oh, absolutely. Many, many, many. And it, it probably brings me to a more generic view. Most of the best practice I've seen has been when teachers go into it in a disadvantaged setting, they understand, first of all, they have a common purpose. They've they've, they've worked together to say what the common purpose. And my, my best example of, of things working well is teachers working in collaboration. And this is probably a bugbear of mine. I think if I was going to change the system, that's what I would be doing. I would be saying, can we actually work? I, I walked into, we'd say, that school, we'd say, when I started teaching, I closed the door and that was your domain. You were in there in your classroom. So what I've seen is, is actually... Uh, it, it, it probably has been a, a reinterpretation, if you like, of um, of the curriculum uh, that we just don't divide up into silos of, of subjects. And the best practice I've seen has been maybe thematic approach, people working on projects. That really have, I have found to be in a highly motivational and effective way. But by the way, it, it is in the hands of skilled teachers. How do I ensure that I am actually attending to all the required learning outcomes, if that's what you want to do? Collaboration among teachers, I've been seeing really, really effective. That's interesting. That so, so it's not so much what an individual teacher is doing; it's how they're how they too are networking with other teachers and collaborating with them. Well, think about it, Sean. Say, say there's four classes. Like I was up room 13, 14, 15, 16 upstairs. Say one teacher was doing a fantastic, and they were they were in the in the little pod, and this wasn't, and even in a small corridor, they weren't even five or ten feet away. And this happened, and there's no c- contamination out of it. The most powerful thing I've seen is people collaborating and working together and learning from each other. Uh, only recently, I, I, I acquired a small little allotment for, for, for gardening, right? And I went over and I, thinking that I was well-equipped, being a farmer's son, that I could go and do it. And I plowed my own furrow, literally, and, and did all myself until some of the people in the neighboring ones started giving me advice. And then suddenly we had almost like a mehel. Sean, I learned more in, 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 in the evenings in the last three weeks or four weeks from it. And I could have been left to my own devices. And that really, I, the same model I am convinced with is about an education. Similarly, if we're, if we're doing something in our own, in teacher education, how more valuable is to have three or four heads together? Like, you know, uh, and I've all for, for, forever had this notion is that we are not isolated in our minds. It doesn't, it doesn't work. Another example would be doing a crossword. And you're doing a crossword and, and someone else happens. The person might never give you the answer to it, but what they say often promotes something else into saying, oh, that's a different way of thinking. And I know one thing from, from working with yourself and other colleagues over the last 20 years in teacher education, most of our more creative things happens when we came together and just, you know, get, get the think tank going and get it going. You can't do it on your own. No, and I, I, I agree with that. And still, I think some people would come and they'll say, oh, yeah, no, I, I, I believe in collaboration. It's really important. But listen, I don't have the time. I just, I have, I have so many commitments myself and I have responsibility and I want to do this and that. Isn't that what people use as an excuse for not? John, are you talking about that in the context of a school? I'm thinking of school and even of teacher education, but schools yeah. as well. I mean, it's like schools are supposed to be our focus today. 
Yeah, and, and I think the, I think the person who says they haven't got the time, well, they are are they slaves to to learning outcomes? Are they slaves to a timetable? Are they slaves? And 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 then at the end of it, the expectation or the inference is, I've I've ticked all those boxes, so I'm done. Like I I learn personally more in project based learning and in thematic than I ever did anything else. It's only it's, it took me a long long time to figure out that. If you're gonna, um, because when you when you cast your eye back to, to your own education, what actually happened? You no, know, the idea of education is what left when you forgot what you've learned. Like, and really, it really is. When I go back and I said, "Well, where did I learn? Where did the learning happen for me?" And it was more or less in in that in that thematic approach, working with other children in the school. I, I that, that happened by accident, I think, when I was in school. But I remember, I remember them because it shakes you up. Because when you're on your own, your your, your limitations are there. Another child, uh, even if they, they don't agree what you're doing, it's, it's going to actually churn up your, your, your response. So I do think, I, I don't buy into no time thing. We all know that principles are important in any school, but are, are there particular responsibilities on a principal in a disadvantaged area? Are, are there particular things they can do to, to bridge this network gap that you've talked about and to support students in a, in, in a disadvantaged school? You know, some Sean, I I probably could talk for an hour about what a t- principal could do and motivating staff, and and uh, I would say I, this sounds very very um, basic now. The biggest role, I think, the most important role as a principal is recruiting and appointing the right teacher and retaining the right staff. Now that sounds very simplistic, but if you really said said I am going to go about identifying somebody who's going to be part part of our team who understands our shared vision here. And I would say the most powerful thing that, that is, is get the right person. The biggest excitement I've had as a chairperson of a board over the last, we say, eight or nine years is a vacancy in the school. For whatever reason, if someone might have retired, I'm not saying because I, I'm glad someone might try anything, a vacancy in the school. What opportunity? What an opportunity. And each time you go and interview with the principal and say, what do we need here? What do we need? It challenges you to say, what's our vision here? Or why do we need this person? recruiting and retaining the right staff then once you have that you can you can you you, you are, you're in the gravy train right it really is and that takes a while by the way it takes a lifetime um and I have a shared vision so that mightn't be the answer you expected but <laughs> no no i mean it is and i mean even still you know i think interviews and so on they can be they can be they're not exact sciences so 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 to, to get the right teacher is uh is so difficult and then to define what is what is the right teacher for a particular position yes i absolutely agree with you and i do agree with you they're not an exact science and sean yourself and myself have sat in many interview boards together i am actually as interested in the person that sits you before you and 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 that as as their their, their knowledge they bring to it because uh, knowledge is not immutable, like we can do something with that. Our interviews in Darndale have become much longer than they used to be, but they're not asking harder, harder questions, if you like. It's actually getting, getting, a, getting a sense of the person and how they could actually feed in and be part of the shared vision. We're coming at the end, Gene. So I have some general questions that I put to all guests on the podcast. And the first one is, what is school for or what are schools for? The first thing that comes to mind is to ignite children's engagement in their learning, right? But we've had a very, really nice, uh, at least semicolon, if not a full stop, in the last year with a pandemic. What, school, what are schools for? One of the enduring intrigue by something that's happened is that children grappling to get back to school. I thought children didn't, that they were, they were listen, school's out, let's go. Like, you know, let, 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 let's, get, let's get out of here. 
And why are they grappling to get back to school? Because of the social interaction that they have in schools. They miss their friends, usually. They miss the misinteraction. So schools are, are, are about generally about igniting, I suppose, active and willing engagement in learning, but providing a vehicle for that. And I would break that down into probably three things. The aims of the individual, developing you know, autonomy and engagement that our schools are for. But they're also, the next circle would be the wider world. They'd appreciate things like citizenship and sustainability. And then, of course, the property of the schools are about exploring uh, and understanding, dialogue, imagination and learning, all those things. So that's what, that's what our schools are for, effectively. And if we came up with a, a way, I think the pandemic was brilliant. We dispersed all the children. We actually said, we can still teach you, inverted commas. We can still actually uh, develop all those things. But what we can't do is we can't have you together. And this brings it back to the whole collaboration idea. I know, I know even when, since they came back, I've, I've, I've heard anecdotally, yeah, we're back, but we're in isolation. The teachers can't meet in staff rooms. The children are in pods, but they're in their own pod, surely. No, but they, they're not. So it's actually screeching at us. Collaboration, social interaction. That's it, John. That's what schools are for. <laughs> is there a teacher who had a significant impact on you? There's a teacher who, who was a colleague had a huge impact on me, first of all. A colleague had an impact on me and how she taught. And there's a, a, I, I mentioned back to um, the, about the project learning. I had a teacher who taught me in fifth class completely, exclusively, almost through project-based learning. But almost exclusively. I remember, for instance, the West Cork Railway. We did a project in that. And we did everything, Sean. We did our writing. We did our uh, research as regards heading down to, we'll say, to, to interviewing people who remember the West Cork Railway. We actually b- built model railways. That was our visual arts, probably. We had songs about living on the railway. And I was, are you right there, right Michael? There, Michael. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. And But it went through the whole thing, the history, the geography, the sense of place, sense of time. I remember even doing science, Sean. The, the, why did they st- decide to bring the, the railway from Cork to Bandon? Why did they go through the tunnel why didn't they go around it or go over the hill because that time the steam engines couldn't go and we actually working out the angles of the hills we had remember the the teacher telling us it used to cost a shilling for every sleeper on the the railways and it was 500 sleepers every mile calculate how much did it cost like it was but the very fact that i'm discussing this uh, 50 years later it just tell you the impact of it so that's one one teacher had a big impact there and again feeds into my notion of thematic and project learning and the other one was a teacher i taught with who i asked uh, as a part of a, a study uh, in, in teaching reading that that she wouldn't use uh, any readers what i call it readers now as in the Ann and barry's as we call them the the the, the, the structural reading schemes and that she would actually, you know, teach reading in a different way. And in a, in, a, in a way, she was using some of the fluency stuff, doing poetry and doing all that. But I, in doing that project, when we did it, and, and she produced some of the best readers that are in the country. But what I learned about that during that project was a, a craftsperson in, 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 that they used to go in and immerse the children. I never knew which subject she was teaching when I was in her classroom. Which is, which is a really good thing. I learned about that, about the, the false, uh, the necessary but sometimes false uh, divisions between silo of subjects, how it can, it can be an impediment to learning. What's your vision of an educated person? I think, first of all, that they're responsible. That, that an educated person, I, I, I'm not sure you can have this sense of civic duty without, without being educated, first of all. If they're, they're informed, but not informed about knowing, knowing more, but, but, but informed, knowledgeable about cultures and societies, the way decisions and the ways, I suppose, how governments work. I think that could be educated at that level. The one thing that I would say is a 
to me, one of the uh, is having an inquiring mind. I'm not sure you can really have an inquiring mind without being being educated. I might say inquiring mind. How does nature work? How does the physical world around us work? That's that's all part of. I think when you're educated, um, these sort of questions: where do we come from? Uh, how should we live? Those sort of questions are, are are to me are emblems of being educated. And I think also an educated person has an enduring proactive self-motivation for more learning you know this idea of, of lifelong learning an education person one thing is interesting is being able to discern fact from opinion because the more things that are put out there and this is probably going back to what we hear about the fa- fake news but i think an educated person will be able to discern fact from opinion who or what inspires you a, a trait that inspires me that i like is perseverance perseverance is as it's only you know it's only when you get older and you get more reflective realize what actually does and is inspired the right word but i know perseverance and i i can think of people probably that that, that wouldn't be known by other people who actually have shown that trait and that perseverance i've a great i i think that doesn't it's inspirational to me perseverance and that doesn't mean perseverance as being pig-headed and stubborn which i'm often describing myself as, as, as but just perseverance is something and and things that uh the, the inspiration part, there's a, there's, a, there's a variety of people who inspire me in different ways. Uh, and usually is is the traits that they, they have that inspire, like, you know. And perseverance is... is yeah, it's a, probably up there, Sean. It's up yeah. top, yeah. Have you a favourite writer, book or blog about education? You've been helpful, actually, sometimes in, in, in bringing me to some blogs. I, I do like uh, Derek Sivers. Is it Sivers or Sivers? Sivers. Yeah. yeah, I like I love his blog. In fact, what I, re- I really enjoy is his book notes. His book notes. Now, that's not specifically education, but they're all educational. I really think his book notes are fantastic. I just, I, I'm, I'm in awe that he can actually invest so much time. Uh, I, and but, but I, I love after I've read a book to go to Derek, Derek Sivers and see his take on it. Right, an author, Ken Robinson. He only passed away recently in the element. Uh, read his idea of creativity, and again, a different way of looking at schooling. Must, must I enjoy that? Um, from my own area of literacy, uh, enjoyed. There's. Um, there is the Science of Reading pod blog that I listen to. Timothy Shannon has a good blog. He, he tends to be provocative, which is good, because when you're provocative, it tends to put you reeling and got you looking elsewhere for reading. Um, going back to my notion of a, I'm probably too heavily reading uh, books in my own uh, domain rather than spreading out to, to, to I have two two sides, Sean. The very, very uh, interesting autobiography sort of books and then books that are, that are got, got to do with my job, which is a bit sad, really. Oh, that's yeah. really interesting. Uh, and, and whose biography inspired you? Very, very interesting one. Uh, John Major's one was, was very interesting. Yeah, that's sure. what, that was one uh, very, very interesting autobiography. There have been other ones. A lot of the ones I tend to go to because of my interest have been sport. And have some of read, those. Um, have you read Arnold Schwarzenegger's? No, but I've heard very good things really, about it, including really Derek Sivers again. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's one I didn't expect to like. It was absolutely fantastic because it takes into account his, his bodybuilding, his politics and his uh, acting. It's really good. Yeah, there, there's. It's funny. There's ones that that, that you don't expect because, like, uh, I, one thing I've learned about autobiographies is if you can get an autobiography that's actually an autobiography, is good. But if they're ghostwritten, they can be actually shaped, and that yeah. and you don't get it. So sometimes you can get a really, and it doesn't have to be the the most uh, interesting. The, the one um, tennis player, uh, um, the open, open um, Agassi. Agassi. 
brilliant. Yeah, brilliant. Like because it was, he wrote that book. Like that was that was because he, he had to. It was painful in, in parts, but one of the best books I ever I ever read is the guy's autobiography. Because way beyond, because tennis only becomes one part of it. It's, 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 it's his approach to life. So anyway, there are a couple of them. Yeah. Okay, that's great. And finally, Jean, what from your own primary or secondary education informs your practice in education today? I think I, I I did mention the West Cork Railway Project. That probably informs my practice, my view of an education that we that we don't see anything in a silo any, anymore. When I say informs my practice, a lot of my practice would be would be around the literacy idea. And I think when I think back, and it, it took a long time to delve back into how I learned to read myself. I was very motivated to read, obviously, looking at books that I found with my name on it when I was quite young. But I also remember is lessons that I learned from my from from my primary education, especially, is that you that you don't actually exclude children. And I I I know I lived through classrooms where children were excluded for a variety of reasons. So so this notion of developing a, what's an inclusive classroom, we had a very hom- homogenous classroom back in West Cork in the back in the day and but there was a lot of exclusion for a lot of different reasons, not purposeful, I think, but a lot of different reasons. So I, I've learned to be inclusive. I also remember the small indications of how that informed my practice along the way. I remember reading a book orally out loud in, in, in class and, use, and pronouncing the word huge as huggy. And a chorus of laughter around me, you know, whether I was a very sensitive child or not, but saying, wow, I'm thinking afterwards and then not wanting to read out loud for a while unless I got it all right. So things like that, to be sensitive to children's needs, etc. And I think I might have said it to you. I, I read um, Enid Blyton's Br'er Rabbit. And I, I know for years I read it as Br'er Rabbit like, because Br'er didn't make any sense to me at the time. So an awful lot of that things, realizing what I did as a, as a child. And, and by the way, I also take the positive sides of it. What I learned from practice is that, is that a really good teacher who could actually give you your head. And I remember us um, drawing um, maps of Ireland together, collaboratively, four or five of us, and all finding out, can you, do you know what's the next bay to Dunmanus Bay or what's the highest mountain in Galway? These are things we all, by my memory dose, we, we, we did it all together. We did it all together. And that was my colleague, Dr. Jean Megan, who is Vice President for Education and Strategic Development in Marino Institute of Education, ending our conversation on the themes of collaboration and inclusion. You can listen back to or download this podcast and over 400 previous episodes of Inside Education by going to my website, seandelaney.com, and clicking on Podcasts. My book about teaching, Become the Primary Teacher Everyone Wants to Have, is now available in audio format from Audible and all major audiobook platforms. Follow me on Twitter, where I use the handle at InsideEd. Please write with comments or suggestions for the podcast to InsideEducationPodcast at yahoo.com. If you liked this episode, please leave a review or a rating on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Until the next time, this is Sean Delaney signing off. Thank you for listening.